today's scripture, I'll say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetop which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you have not left us alone, but that you come to us. You speak to us through your word. You um, apply it to us by your spirit. Would you break into our lives this morning, God? Whether we come hopefully and eagerly, or if we come uh, cynically, whether we are convinced or unconvinced, God, would you surprise us with your grace this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I uh, assume that uh, almost everybody in the room has seen um, the movie Star Wars, the, uh, the first one that came out in 1977, which we later found out was episode four, um, Star Wars A New Hope, was this kind of groundbreaking movie. I think it came out in 1977. And um, groundbreaking for just film in general. It's, it's shaped a whole generation. It continues to have an effect in the present day um, through the unrelenting marketing, um, uh, you know, appetite of George Lucas and the Disney Corporation. Um, it's a movie that relates to, uh, that we all relate to in many ways. And there, there's this iconic scene in the first, in, in A New Hope, where uh, Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and Han Solo are um, on the run and they've disguised themselves as stormtroopers. Uh, and then they've been found out, I think, because one of them is too short to be a stormtrooper. Um, they're discovered, and so they're, they're trying to hide, and they sort of jump into a room to hide, and they find out that they've jumped into, like, a trash heap. And there they are on the trash heap, and then the walls literally begin to close in on them, and they realize they're not just in a trash heap, they're in a trash compactor. And they're understandably, you know, they're freaking out. Uh, this is not good. They're trying to brace things to keep the walls from closing, but the walls keep closing in. They're trying to do things to save themselves. And then finally, at the last moment, R2-D2 intervenes and he shuts down the trash compactor and it stops and they're saved. Um, he intervenes, somebody outside their system intervenes and shuts down the trash compactor and they're saved. This morning we're talking about a generation that I think is feeling the squeeze and is desperate for hope. 
And we're looking at a psalm addressed to those feeling the squeeze and offering them hope by pointing to the one who stands outside of their trouble, one who can intervene in order to save. Reading Psalm 129, as Roz read it just a moment ago, uh, you don't hear this psalm and think, oh, this is one of those happy psalms. (laughs) This is not a happy, uplifting psalm. Nevertheless, Psalm 129 offers us glimmers of hope that are not only able to aid us uh, in, in, in not letting bitterness remain in our hearts, they actually help us as we struggle with the deep agony of our souls. Walter Brueggemann is a uh, scholar, has a great book on the Psalms, and he, he says that the Psalms can be broken down into one of th- uh, three categories. There are Psalms of orientation, There are psalms of disorientation, and then there are psalms of reorientation. And we really see this psalm fitting into sort of beginning with this this sense of disorientation and then moving towards reorientation, um, reframing our experiences and our expectations and reorienting us towards a way of living that provides real medicine for sick souls and real hope for transformation in our lives. And I think all Americans in general, in one sense, can relate to this sense of, of, uh, of needing this sense of reorientation as we have lived through a very disorienting couple of years where there's been cultural shifts and significant division. But no group is feeling that more than the generation whose childhood and adolescence has been forged in these disorienting times. Very few of them can vote but most members of Gen Z are just trying to make sense of how to be connected and valued in a world where you can be connected globally to almost any individual on the planet. Uh, You have the potential in one moment to be literally an influencer and canceled in the very next moment. Gen Z has grown up with the rise of the nuns, which can be perceived for many of us as something maybe to lament uh, because cultural Christianity and what Peter Berger called the sacred canopy have been removed. Um, And it can be a time to embrace a more realistic and healthier version and expression of Christianity and church freed from cultural Christianity of the right and left and poised for deep, committed, transformative discipleship. In this series, Generations on Mission, We've been using the Psalms as a guide to explore the roles that each of the six living generations plays in the life of the church. And we've talked about the four generations leading up uh, to this generation. So we talked about the silent generation. And we talked about how the silent generation reminds us of our humanity and our vulnerability and points us to the faithfulness of God. And we've talked about how baby boomers are moving into a stage of support and mentorship and, yes, funding the mission of the church as baby boomers control uh, the majority of wealth in America. Uh, And that it's time for baby boomers to think about building a legacy and encouraging those who are younger than them to step into positions of leadership. That also means Gen X. It has to be be time for Gen X, uh, which is your pastor, (laughs) and others to embrace leadership, to move out of the shadows, 
and to prepare for renewal. We talked last week about millennials and we said that millennials who are reaching for the sky and spreading their wings need to continue to do so, but also need to put down deep gospel roots into the presence of God, the reality of who God is in order to establish long-term fruitfulness. And these are the four generations who have really led to um, the existence of the generation we're talking about today. We still have two more generations to talk about. Uh, and I'm going to shift a little bit in how I've done this because now we're getting into genera- a generation that, I mean, there are Gen X or, or Gen Zers rather in the room. I have three of them. I have three Gen, X, Gen, Z, Gen Z children. Um, Two of them are, are listening to me right now, right? <laughs> and so we're talking to Gen Z, but I also want to talk about Gen Z because part of the, what we're trying to do in this series is think about what does it look like for older generations to hand down the faith to younger generations. And so part of Gen Z kind of taking its role and its place in the church as they come of age uh, is incumbent on those of us who are older to hand down our faith to them. These are our kids. These are our future. They're the first group that will benefit immediately from older generations committed to a transformational discipleship and a life of hope. So Gen Z, who are they and what are they like? Gen Z was born between 1997 and uh, 2012, and they're currently between the ages of 10 and 25 years old. Gen Z makes up about 21% roughly of the U.S. population and about 17% of Trinity's congregation. I don't know if you've noticed, I've shared those statistics for each generation. Baby boomers, Trinity is larger than the national average. Every other generation, Trinity is smaller than the national average, um, which which is true of the church in general. Uh, This generation is still coming of age. We're still learning more about them, but what we do know is that they're growing up in a world where the pace of change has accelerated dramatically. They were born into a world where the internet was ubiquitous, but its effects have not yet fully been understood. We're starting to see um, you know, social science, socially scientific studies talking about the effects of uh, screen time on our kids. And it's not great news, but you know, as parents, when they're in the back seat and they're making noise, it was easy to just hear, hand them a screen. And um, we're learning that maybe that wasn't healthy, but we're probably still doing it anyway, right? Uh, They've had access to screens from the earliest moments, and they're spending more time on electronic devices, less time reading books, than they spend less face time with their parents or their friends than any generation um, before. Unlike their parents, Gen Z children are sort of growing up, unlike their parents or or grandparents, growing up almost in these siloed relationships where they relate um, with their peers quite a bit, but tend to not have as much interaction with people older than them. And even their relationship with with their peers are often mediated through technology and social media. And so it's leading to a profound sense of loneliness because the art of conversation is being lost and Gen Zers tend to communicate more in sort of like a mutual monologue towards each other or diatribes against each other rather than listening and seeking to understand one another's point of view. And then we add to that the significant events that have shaped their childhood and adolescence. Um, We all went through a pandemic, but we didn't all go through a pandemic as teenagers. And uh, the events that take place 
in our, in our adolescence are those that, that have a really shaping inf- influence on who we will become. So Gen Z experienced um, the pandemic, distance learning, the great reshuffle. Our family has moved three times during COVID. Um, and that's, that's not really an aberration. The, the, the number of Americans who have moved in the last three years uh, is pretty, pretty high. Uh, They're living through a time where the American century is coming to an end, where environmental concerns are becoming more of a reality and will likely affect the rest of their lives. Josh Reindu uh, has an article on the Gospel Coalition website where he talks about the reality that many, most young people experience something that's been called FOMO, the fear of missing out, but that Gen Z's FOMO is more uh, what he calls FOBO, the fear of better options. He says that Gen Z legitimately has difficulty figuring, uh, figuring out how to commit or make long-term plans or goals because of this fear of better options. He says this, the average young person's inner dialogue seems to have shifted from, what if I don't go and they have fun without me, as millennials and Gen X wondered about, to now, what if I commit now but I regret it later? Or what if I commit now and a better opportunity comes along? The fear of better options may be the reason why if you spend time with young people, you get texts like, yeah, I'll probably be there unless something else comes up. Um, or at the last minute, you know, when you're preparing the meal, something did come up and we're not going to be there. <laughs> and before we like roll our eyes or kind of face palm and just say, you know, kids these days, uh, we have to get some perspective on that. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, who I've quoted before, who um, teaches uh, social psychology, moral psychology at NYU, he says that Gen Z is experiencing a national crisis. This is what he says. When you look at Americans born after 1995, what you find is that they have extraordinarily high rates of anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicidality, and fragility. There has never been a generation this depressed, anxious, or fragile. He sees two causes for those mental health um, concerns, social media and, in his words, a culture that emphasizes victimhood. So on the first one of those, on social media, this is what he says, depression rates started to rise all of the sudden, just sort of out of nowhere around 2013, especially for teen girls. But he says it's only Gen Z, it's not older generations that are experiencing this. By 2015, he calls it an epidemic. And what's driving that is this. This is the time frame when more than 50% of older generations are connected to social media and 50% were on smartphones. This is also the time when Gen Zers are uh, teenagers and the year that Facebook bought Instagram. So, you know, this is correlation, perhaps not causation, but it's when social media becomes ubiquitous that... um, teens' mental health begins to decline precipitously. Jonathan Haidt says, social media and selfies hit a generation that had led an overprotected childhood in which the age at which children were allowed outside on their own by parents had arisen from the norm of previous generations. This is fascinating that uh, millennials and older parents tended to let their kids go outside to play, ride the bike, kick a soccer ball, whatever, Uh, around the ages of seven or eight. But for Gen Z, that rose to 10 to 12 years old. Uh, You know, almost five years later, depending on if you take the extremes. So what that means is that Gen Z is growing up in a world where 
um, taking risks and developing resilience in low-stakes environments is increasingly less common. For a generation to develop resilience, Jonathan Haidt says, you cannot operate out of a scarcity mindset. You have to have an abundance mindset, which allows you to be creative and be oriented towards the future. But if you're in a scarcity mindset, uh, you're focused on avoiding threats in the present. And then he says this, as this generation is going to college, quote, they are entering into the safest, most welcoming, most inclusive, most anti-racist places on the planet, but many of them are acting like they were entering some sort of dystopian, threatening, immoral world. That's the effect of social media and how it then leads into what he calls a culture of victimhood. In an effort to correct the wrongs of previous generations, American Gen Zers are coming of age in a world where embracing victimhood is supplanting developing resilience. The challenge is to take, uh, take seriously the reality of people who have been victimized without getting stuck in a scarcity mindset that says this is all that there is and that's the end of the story. So that's the demographics on on this generation. And Psalm 129 speaks poignantly to all of us, but especially to Gen Z, because it speaks to the reality of a world that is filled with trouble or that is filled with affliction. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage, in verses 1 through 4, is our perspective on trouble. Our perspective, we desperately need um, to have perspective on the trouble of this world. And that's what the psalm speaks to. The psalm is written in the first person, um, but it's written with this kind of corporate connection. Um, it's, it's sort of like one person speaking on behalf of many. It's talking about a, a, a shared pain um, that is shared with all of Israel. It's an intimate corporate connection with their shared experience and shared pain. And you see this when the Psalmist says, sort of repeats himself in verse 1 and 2. Um, you know, he says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. That when, he, when he kind of pauses and says, let Israel now say, it's like, a, it's like a pastor saying, like, are you with me? You know, come on, guys. Um, one person speaking for many is, is what is what's talking about here. Um, and he's saying, greatly have we been afflicted. Since our youth, the term afflicted that's used in verse 1 and 2 has a range of meaning, but the idea is of being confined or being attacked or oppressed or squeezed or, or trapped into, um, trapped with no way to, uh, to escape. So there's, that's going back to the Star Wars uh, trash compactor metaphor, if you're wondering where that came from. Um, that's what it's talking about when it's saying we, we are afflicted. Circumstances of life are pressing in on us. Verse 3, the psalmist says, they have plowed upon my back. So not only is he saying life has been difficult, but he's saying there, there are people who are actually perpetrating evil against me who are cruel and vicious. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. What he's describing, I mean, he's using the language of agriculture to talk about lines across someone's back. What does that look like? Well, it's the result of of being beaten, being whipped, being flogged. Um, The lines across the back come from you know, scourging. It's, it's likely a reference to Israel's slavery in Egypt. 
but it's also a metaphor for the often difficult reality of life in general. The psalm speaks into the often disorienting reality of life in a fallen world, and it shows us that trouble or affliction or the sense of being confined and hemmed in by the circumstances of life does not mean that God has abandoned his people. Resilience uh, in the face of trouble is what this psalm is speaking about, not about how to avoid the existence of trouble. And I think this is especially relevant as we consider the reality of trouble for Gen Z because most of us alive today have grown up in a world where our general expectation is that our level of comfort will steadily and gradually increase. And the 20th century, really since World War II, uh, there has been this kind of expectation that things like wars and pandemics are things of the past. Uh, The 20th century was really an attempt to use technology to avoid trouble. And yet in the last couple of years, that's all kind of come crashing down and we've seen that technology is not allowing us to avoid trouble. In fact, some of, some of the technology is making it much worse. Um, and Gen Z is experiencing that more poignantly than the rest of us, I think. That means that Gen Z might be inheriting, maybe inheriting a world where trouble or affliction is more normal than we have come to expect. That it's, you know, the last 50 years have been the aberration uh, in human history, not the norm. So the question then is, how does Gen Z move forward? How does Gen Z uh, not try to avoid trouble but develop resilience in the face of it? Well, the f- first we have to go to the one who is actually able to address not only the effects but the root causes of our trouble. Uh, someone who is outside of our troubled system who can intervene to save And so that's the second thing that we see in this passage, in this psalm in verses 5 through 8, is uh, our prayer in the face of trouble. Our prayer in the face of trouble. The psalm talks about a time of great trouble, suffering, oppression, from which the Lord delivers his people. The conclusion comes with a curse. Uh, the psalmist is calling a praying really a curse on his enemies. It's, they're, they're, this is something that happens sometimes in the psalms that we call uh, the imprecatory psalms. The word imprecatory comes from a, a Latin word imprecat, uh, uh, imprecat, impre, how do I say this? Imprecati, it doesn't matter. <laughs> An invoking of evil, calling down a curse. Imprecatio, got it. Um, these curses express anger that is built up in God's people towards their enemies. You see this in verse 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Their enemies have oppressed and shamed them, and now they call for their efforts to be, uh, for those who are oppressing them to be um, given a taste of their own medicine. It's really, it's a call for God's justice Uh, to prevail. The psalmist prays for their assault on God and his people to be turned back against them. And then he continues in verses six and seven, let them be like grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaves his arms. 
And what this is referring to is, that the, is the way houses would have been built at this time in ancient Israel. They, they were built with flat roofs and bushes and branches would have been laid across the top um, and then covered over and, and sort of plastered in mud. And so in the, in the springtime when it rains, the seed and the mud would sprout and grass would begin to grow on the roof. But then as it gets warm in the summer, it would be killed off and it would wither and die. And so the psalmist is praying, may our enemies be like the grass on the roof in summer, withered and unusable. And then the final part of the curse says in verse 8, nor do those who pass by them say, blessing of the, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And we see in the book of Ruth that that phrase there, may the blessing of the Lord be upon you, is sort of like a standard greeting at the time. But for the enemies of God's people, those afflicting God's people, the psalmist cries out, let them not receive a blessing, but rather be left into the hands of God's justice. They who perpetrate evil uh, must be stopped and their efforts thwarted. It's a prayer for God's justice uh, to come to those who perpetrate the trouble or affliction uh, against God's people. So what does this mean for us, and what does that mean? What does it mean for Gen Z in particular? Well, what it means, I think, is that we don't deny or ignore or sugarcoat the reality of sin and pain and evil in this world. It can be tempting to sort of pietistically just say, well, everything's okay. And the psalmist saying, no, everything is not okay. That we live in a world that is filled um, with evil and pain and suffering. And so it's a call to acknowledge that reality, but neither do we believe that sin and pain and evil are the final word. It's legitimate to acknowledge the reality of evil in our world, to point out injustice, to speak about affliction. In fact, we have to address the evil in this world because the cross is a direct affront to evil, both its source and its effects. While we acknowledge the evil and its effects both in our world and in our lives, we must clearly understand, though, that there is a difference between being a victim and playing the victim. Acknowledging the reality of evil resulting in sinfulness, which leads then to abuse and oppression and trauma and immorality of all kinds, uh, and is ultimately an attack on God and his glory is never wrong. It's vital that we call evil what it is. And at the same time, acknowledgement uh, of victimization is seen in moving from disorientation to reorientation. The psalm acknowledges the reality of affliction, but then cries out to God for justice and relief. It may take a long time to see healing, but playing the victim will only lead to bitterness and anger and malice and retaliation, not healing or forgiveness or reconciliation. We have to remember that sin and sinfulness are not only things that we see in the world around us. They're not just things that happen to us, but they're things in us and things that we do as well. And if we could see the world as God does, we would realize that, yes, we've all been sinned against, and we have all sinned against others as well. And so this kind of second half of the psalm, verses 5 through 8, it's really a prayer that God would turn back the efforts of those opposed to God and all the forms of evil that they seek to perpetuate. 
It's right and good for us to oppose, to oppose evil in all its forms and to pray against its spread. And it's also important and vital that we remember that Jesus was the ultimate victim. That he was the one who was falsely accused, that he was beaten, that he was abandoned, that he was betrayed, he was crucified and buried. The ultimate attempt to cancel someone and defeat good for the sake of evil. And yet as that was happening to Jesus, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what, he, what they do. As Jesus was suffering as the ultimate victim, he doesn't um, talk about the fact that he is being oppressed, but he calls for the forgiveness of those who are oppressing him. So our prayer. But thirdly and finally, in this psalm, we see our hope in trouble. And um, we see this kind of sprinkled throughout the psalm. When we remember Jesus, it, it enables us to both pursue healing, but also to pray against the evil that uh, God and his people experience. We have to remember, I think, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, if anyone curses you, respond to that um, insult by blessing them. We can both pray against evil and those who are enemies of God, because, but, but we can also pray for our enemies. We can pray against them and pray for them. The hope and resilience needed to do this is found only in the gospel, but it's the shadow of the gospel that we see here in Psalm 129. Verse 3, the psalmist says, They have plowed my back. You know, I've been beaten, I've been whipped. And Jesus sympathizes, Jesus experienced that reality. Psalm, or Isaiah 53, rather, talks about Jesus in these words. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. Verse 2 of the psalm says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, but I'm still here. I have prevailed. They have not prevailed against me. Why is that? Because of what happens in verse 4. Because the Lord is righteous. He cut the cords that the wicked had bound us with and set us free. Where does God demonstrate that he's cut the cords of wickedness that have bound his people? Well, we see that ultimately in the cross, don't we? At the cross, it's as Jesus goes to the cross that he is scourged, that he is beat, that he is whipped. Where the lines are plowed into his back. It's on the cross that Jesus is afflicted, where he is confined and hemmed in, squeezed on every side. And it's there on the cross that he buys our freedom. It is on the cross that he breaks the power of sin and cuts the cords of our affliction. None of us can stand before God by our own righteousness, but Jesus took the curse that was placed upon all of us. He took that curse upon himself and stood in our place before the judge of all the earth. Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And this gives us a secure place to not only stand, but also to rest. Jesus didn't just die on the cross so we could say thank you and then go on our merry way. He died on the cross so that we could be people, so that we could be his people and demonstrate to a watching world the great hope of the gospel with transformed lives that enable us to live with resilience and hope in a world that is still very much filled with trouble. I love the words of Jesus in John 16, where his disciples have come to him and they basically say to him, Jesus, you say things in a really confusing way a lot of the time. Why do you do that? And Jesus answers why he speaks in less than fully transparent, straightforward ways. And he says, a time is coming when I will speak to you plainly. But then he says this, John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then he says this, in the world you will have tribulation, is how it's usually translated. Uh, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Now, before I read the rest of that, think, how, would you, how would you finish that sentence? Like, if you were a parent maybe talking to a child, um, in this world, you will have trouble. That's just life. <laughs> or, in this world, you will have trouble, but it's okay because you are a very capable, strong, smart, special, unique individual. Um, Or in this world, you're going to have trouble, so just so you know, you're going to have to have a stiff upper lip or, or something like that. But this is what Jesus says. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's beautiful. Jesus doesn't call us to live a naive life, a life that's unrealistic about the world that we live in. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but the hope he offers us is this, to trust in the one who has overcome the world. The one who stands outside of our world and its trouble has entered into our world to take upon himself the sin and affliction of our world and to set us free. And that is what allows us to live with hope in a world where sin and affliction are still a reality. This is the good news of the gospel that Psalm 129 points us to. So I want to finish just a couple minutes by asking this question, so what? What does that mean for Gen Z? But I want to apply this in a slightly different way than I've done in the past couple of weeks. Because in the past couple of weeks, I've mostly spoken to the, gener- the generation we're talking to. And that's part of it here. But I think, again, we have to realize that part of um, the reason we're in this series is because those who are older than Gen Z and Gen Alpha have to think about what does it look like for us to disciple this generation. How can those of us in older generations encourage our brothers and sisters and children and grandchildren in Gen Z towards a loving commitment to Jesus? And there are a handful of things that I want to just briefly share with you. The first is this. We need to make sure that we consistently model integrity in our commitment to Christ and his kingdom. I'm reminded of this um, quote Uh, from Brennan Brennan Manning in the Ragamuffin Gospel that if you're of a certain age, you may have also heard on a DC Talk uh, CD (laughs) where he said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. 
what, what he's saying is that Gen Z is looking to older Christians and wondering if our faith is genuine. The hypocrisy in our faith shatters their faith. Gen Z doesn't expect us to be perfect, but are we willing to repent when we are wrong? Gen Z doesn't expect us to be perfect, but are we willing to sacrifice our self-interest out of faithfulness to Jesus? If we are, that's what will inspire their faith. Will we practice our faith with integrity or out of convenience? Secondly, we need to make sure that we consistently model faithfulness in our own commitments to them. Many of us rub shoulders with uh, members of Gen Z here at church, at work. Um, many of you work with Gen Zers um, at Cal Poly or elsewhere. And many of you rub shoulders with Gen Z in your house because they're your children and grandchildren. Do we treat appointments and commitments to them with the same level of seriousness that we do towards others? Thirdly, we need to express encouragement when young people do demonstrate loving commitment. It's something that doesn't come naturally to them. And so we need to validate and appreciate it when it happens. What would it look like for you to express your gratitude for their service? Has a uh, young person shown interest in a relationship with you? What would it look like to take them out for lunch? Um, what would it look like to respond to that curiosity, gently, lovingly coming alongside them, um, telling them how grateful you are for them? Make sure you tell them how grateful you are for their initiative and prioritize fitting time with them in. Fourthly, we need to lovingly share how we experience uh, the effects of their phobo, the fear of better options. Have you ever gotten a text from a, um, you know, a Gen Zer who, who said, like, yeah, I'll probably be there unless something else comes up? And you're like, thanks, that's awesome. <laughs> Um, we need to lovingly, gently communicate. Like, when you're not willing to commit to get together with me in three days because something might better come up, something better might, might come up, that's right, um, that hurts. That's painful. If we're willing to have those hard conversations gently and lovingly, we might be the only people in their lives who love them enough to say so. And then finally, we have to be patient and empathetic. There are real reasons why Gen Z's anxiety and struggles are unique to this generation. I sort of said this earlier, but we really are, um, and the social science seems to be backing this up increasingly, doing an experiment about the role of technology and the lives of young people on an entire generation. We don't know what the outcomes of that experiment will be, but it's not looking good. And we have to keep that in mind when we get these non-committal texts from our kids or younger friends or family members. They are fighting a battle that you and I may not fully understand. The reason that we are in this series is because I want us as Trinity to start thinking about what does it look like for this church to have a vision for moving forward together. And that's not as simple as, you know, crafting a, 
updated mission statement or articulating goals and saying, this is the center of the dartboard. Now we're all going to go there. We do need to do that. But as we do that, all of us are going to start moving together in different ways and at our own paces and bringing in our own struggles and strengths with us. Loving one another across generations is going to come at a cost to everyone. For Generation Z, this may mean a willingness to commit in spite of the fear of missing out on better options. And for older generations, it might mean um, practicing patience, learning how to not roll our eyes, learning how to not make comments about kids these days. For each of us, it means investing in these relationships despite our differences. And it's an opportunity to love each other in the way that Christ loved us. And so ultimately, that's what I want to leave you with this morning. Jesus is the one who comes to us and lays down his life in order to show us his love. And because he has laid down his life in order to love us, he invites us to respond by laying down our lives for the sake of others. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the depth of your love. We thank you for... um, the beauty of the gospel for the way that you have entered into our lives, into our trouble, you who could have remained uh, aloof and detached from the affliction of our broken humanity. And yet you didn't do that. You came and took on our flesh, experienced the effects of our sin, in order to cut the cords that bound us and to set us free. And we pray that you would help us to not just hear those words, but to experience that reality. That those of us who uh, are older than Gen Z would be motivated to live lives of integrity and commitment because the gospel is so good. Not that we're going to do that perfectly, but we want to do it intentionally because we really want to see the uh, 10 to 25-year-olds in our church growing up uh, loving Jesus and not being afraid of holding out for better options because they have discovered there is no greater love than the one offered to us in Christ. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.